Hey, this is Pastor Allen. Thank you so much for checking out this message from Praise. Every year in advance of Christmas, we take the four weeks leading up to December 25th, and we talk about the four themes of Advent, which are hope, peace, joy, and love, in light of Jesus Christ coming and being among us. I hope that this message and this series is meaningful for you. Good to see you guys this morning. I do want to mention a couple things as we're getting started uh, here right off the bat. Um, This is the time of year when it's obviously we're leading up to Christmas. It's also a sad time of the year for some uh, of us because many of our college students kind of head back. They finished up finals uh, this last week and are headed or have headed out except for those who are still here because they're awesome um, and sticking around for one more Sunday before they head back. But in general, many are kind of heading out and it was, it was a sad day for me to finish up my semester. My dog, so, so this is the situation. I, I finished writing the paper, hit submit, sent it off, um, and then I thought I probably should have edited that. No, I'm just kidding. I, I sent it off, and as I was like, I, I, in that moment, the sheer joy of I'm finished, and I, got, I actually got the grade back this morning, still filled with joy, but Friday specifically, everybody else was out of the house, and... and um, and I, I was, like, it was just me, and the dogs were in their kennels up in their, in their, uh, in the laundry room is where we keep the kennels, and, and so they were kind of locked away. I was just me in the house, and I was so filled with joy that I made a joyful noise unto the <laughs> Lord, right? That kind of a noise where you're not sure if that was a, a shout of joy or if that was somebody being murdered. You couldn't really figure it out, and our dogs did not know what to do. Like, they thought I was in pain, in, in, but it was just that, oh, such celebration. And it was just a good week all the way around. Of course, we had a stroll in the park, as you've, we've mentioned a few times already, 200-ish people who were serving in some capacity at the thing. Um, just so you know, I lied that night. I literally, I, I heard a lie coming out of my mouth. Somebody asked, I know. Can't even trust anything I say anymore. I was at, I was at the stroll, and somebody said, did you know this many people were going to come? He said, yeah, we had an idea. So somebody said, somebody, I won't say who it was, but somebody, uh, so as we were considering the fact that we were moving it away from the road, that um, we, we expected about half of what we had, or, or somewhere in there compared to what we have seen in the past with the Christmas tree lighting just on the North Lawn, because it used to be up here close to the, to the road. And so we thought, well, it's further away. Maybe people won't see it or be a part. And, and yet we, we saw probably upwards of a thousand people here um, last Sunday night, which is awesome. So very cool. So exciting. It was a coming out day for our party or for our park as people were recognizing that we were just giving this gift to the community, gave me an opportunity to get up in front, people see my face, um, and to hear what praise is about and why we love our community and what we're trying to do and, and to invite our, our community to really be a part of this whole thing and to, to create a space for them to come and uh, to create more community here. And so it was just such a great night all the way around. We have dreams and ideas of what the future might look like for that and ways that we might improve. And for those of you who got a praise beanie, yeah, um, everybody else, you guys missed out and you can get one next year if you volunteer. Okay. So so make sure to do that. But I, I told them, yeah, we expected that. I was the one, though, who said we should only plan for 500 people. And then we quickly ran out of some stuff, and that was all my fault. They had planned for 1,000 from the beginning, and I said, no, 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 no. We're moving away from the road. Let's just aim for 500. So it was, it was me. I was the one who did it, and I also lied when somebody asked me, did you expect this many? No. No, I didn't. And it was very cool. And so it was just cool to be a part of, and just all around uh, good things happening right 
now. We are in our series leading up to Christmas where we are covering the real, the, the, the four themes of Advent. And so if you don't know what that is, just really historically, there's been four themes that lead up to Christmas that the church talks about um, in, in certain circles. Maybe not in our circle quite as much. Um, but for us, for the last several years at least, this is something we have done. We talked about hope and peace today, joy next week, love. These are the four themes that really kind of resonate around Christmas as you think through what it means that Jesus Christ came and, and became like us. Um, and this, this week, as I was reflecting on specifically joy, I thought, you know what, I, I need to share with praise one of my core values. Because you, you may not know that your pastor, these are not praises core values, these are my core values. This is one of the eight core values that I hold. Okay, so if you don't know, I have core values. I've had them for, I don't know, like three weeks now. And uh, <laughs> I, had to, I had to write a paper where I put in my core values. And, and <laughs> So I've had these forever, way going back. No, I'm, I, but specifically as part of that really thoughtfully, prayerfully thought, I, I'm, you know what, I'm going to really put some effort into this and not just use chat GPT. So um, here's, here's my value, fourth of my eight core values. Now you know something you didn't know before. One of my core values is joy. Uh, specifically, here's the value. I value joy and believe contagious gratitude and decided cheerfulness cultivates satisfaction and delight. I know. <laughs> I better get an A on that paper, right? Like, I had eight of those just like that. Um, <laughs> uh, let me read it again. I value joy and believe contagious gratitude and decided cheerfulness cultivates satisfaction and delight. Um, this was a, a good experience for me because this is a, a value that I've held for some time. Really, I would say in, in actuality, I've held this value going back to about 2016, 2017. We did a series on satisfaction, and that series changed me. It impacted me. It affected me as I stepped back and I realized what does it take? What does God say about satisfaction for us? And what are the pieces that go into that? And joy is a part of that. And so now it's one of my core values, and you know something about me that you didn't know before. Joy should be a part of the Christmas celebration. The fact that God came and lived among us should cause joy inside of us. In fact, more than maybe even any of the other Advent themes, joy really kind of resonates most deeply with Christmas. I expect Christmas to be a time that's filled with joy. It's, it's the only holiday that comes with a soundtrack, right? You can start at the end of October and have your playlist play all the way through January and never listen to the songs, same song twice. You don't. You have specific songs that you listen to on repeat during this time of the year. But you could because there are so many songs around Christmas because Christmas is a time where, where joy is a part of it. Singing is a part of our faith. We have the most singing faith of any of the faiths in the world. So we sing. We sing every week. We don't go through certain motions just because we go through them. The singing is a part of who we are and what we're about, and joy is at the core of this. In, in the first two chapters of Luke alone, during the narrative of the birth of Christ, there are four songs that are recorded. And joy is actually mentioned eight times in the birth narrative. And so if somebody cramps your style for singing around Christmas, tell them if it's good enough for the Bible, it's good enough for me, right? Like, this is the time when joy is, shows up everywhere. You see it on every card. You see it on every sign. You see it in every commercial. It's just a part of Christmas. It's on every cup when you go to the coffee shop. Like, this is, joy is the most Christmassy part of Advent. And so here's what we're going to do today. We are going to read about Jesus's Christmas, okay? We're going to read about Jesus's Christmas, but not his first Christmas. We're going to read about Jesus's last Christmas, 
In fact, I guess you could call it the last Christmas of the Christ. Somebody should write a movie or a book or a song, the last Christmas of the Christ. You can find it in John chapter 10, so grab your Bibles or your phones and open them up to the message notes, as Pastor Dylan mentioned, or you can just grab your Bible and open it up to John chapter 10, because that's where you find the last Christmas of the Christ, the last Christmas of the Christ. We don't know when Jesus was born, right? Um, People have given it their best shot. It is possible that he was born on December 25th. I mean, if you get technical about it, there is a one in 365 percent, you know, one in 365 chance that Jesus was born on December 25th. Um, And there are those who've kind of tried to figure out what, when Jesus was born. There are some who say he was born in either March or September, and they, they use in order to figure out when Jesus was actually born. They use um, when Zechariah was serving in the temple, right? Because they knew he was of the, of the, uh, uh, the, the Abijah section, the Abijah, what do they call that? The, um, somebody say it, priestly order of Abijah, that's it. So his order was on duty during certain times of the year. And so they can kind of figure out from that, there were two times when every priestly order was serving in that capacity. And so based on when Zechariah was in the temple, they say that that must have been these certain times of the year. And then we know that um, nine months later, John the Baptist was, was born, and then Jesus was born six months after that. So if you figure it all out, some people say it's got to be either March or September, which is maybe true and maybe not. We don't really know um, because we don't really know how long after the announcement to Zechariah, Elizabeth got pregnant. It just says after those days, then she conceived. And so we don't know how long that process took. Like maybe it took him being shut up for a while before Elizabeth was interested again. I don't know. Like I, I do think it's really interesting that once Zechariah stopped talking, that then they have a child. Maybe she was into the strong, silent type. I don't know. But like, we don't know how long that took. And so in reality, we don't know when John the Baptist was born, and we don't really know when Jesus was born. The reason why it's December 25th that we recognize was a couple of centuries after Jesus's death and resurrection when they were trying to figure out, they, the church said, listen, this is such a big deal that we need a day to celebrate this. We need to be able to celebrate this. And so as they were working out what day it should be, they chose December 25th, at least partially, most likely, because of the winter solstice, because it is the time of the year when night is the longest and it is coldest. And that is the perfect time to celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ because he is the light and the life that came into the world. There is no better time to celebrate that than at the darkest and coldest time of the year. In fact, if there's a verse that would be better than maybe any other, I'm going to flip over there real quick. John chapter 1 Verse 4, if, this, if you want a good Christmas verse, this is a great verse for Christmas. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 4. And the word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. That is Christmas. Christmas is light in the darkness. So we don't know maybe exactly when it happened, but we know what happened. Light came into the world. And darkness will never suffocate it. Darkness is one of those things that feels suffocating. And yet the way darkness and light work is that darkness will never snuff out the light. And this is what Jesus Christ coming into the world means in the darkest and coldest time of the year. So if Jesus wasn't really born on Christmas, then how do we know that this is Jesus' last Christmas? Because it actually tells us. It, this is the only place, actually, in Scripture, in John chapter 11, where it talks about, and we know, what Jesus was doing at Christmas. Okay, so it's John chapter 10, verse 22, because we don't know where Jesus was on his first Christmas. 
but we do know where he was on his last Christmas. And that's John chapter 10, verse 22. Here's what it says. It was now winter, and Jesus was in Jerusalem at the time of Hanukkah, the festival of dedication. Now, this story is very close to my heart because all the way back in 2008 was the very first time that I preached on this stage. Um, And this was the passage that I read from. And I, I remember because, well, for many reasons, but I remember because if you've never preached in front of a large group of people and you know you have to talk for a long time and everybody's going to be looking at you, at least you hope they're going to keep looking at you and not be looking at the ceiling or looking at the phone or off in the distance. Like, that's, a, that's an intimidating thing. So leading up to that day, my first time preaching in front of a large, large group, I practiced. I came up on Saturday And I practiced multiple times preaching, but then I practiced walking up on stage because super embarrassing if your first time walking up on stage, you trip, right? So I wanted to make sure I knew exactly what that was going to be like. And I walked up on stage and then I practiced and then I walked back because I didn't want to fall on the way back either. Like I practiced everything about it. And this is the passage. And so I will always kind of hold this passage near and dear to my heart for that reason. But it's also a unique passage because this is Jesus in Jerusalem at Christmas time. And there's so many reasons why it's unique. Um, One of the reasons why it's unique is that Jesus here is celebrating a feast or a tradition in the Bible. Like this feast specifically, though, is not a feast that is recorded in the Old Testament. And the reason why it's not recorded in the Old Testament is that it is celebrating something that didn't happen until the Old Testament was over. The people of Israel were told to to observe some of the other feasts, right? Like, so right before this story, if you go back to John 7, really John 7 all the way through John chapter 11, verse 21, is the story of Jesus in Jerusalem at the Feast of the Tabernacles, which happens about three months before this. And so that's like in the fall. He's in Jerusalem for the fall. Leaves, goes somewhere, I guess, and then comes back and is here for the Feast of Dedication. But the reason why this one isn't in the Old Testament while the Feast of Tabernacles is, is because this didn't happen until the the Old Testament was actually done. Once the Old Testament was complete, after that was over, between the Old Testament and the New Testament is when the thing that this is celebrating actually happened. Jesus is in Jerusalem, it says in the New Living Translation, for Hanukkah. And you may already know what that's about, but if you do... Shut up. I'm going to tell you again anyways, because some people don't, okay? How many of you know who Alexander the Great is? If you've heard of Alexander the Great, raise your hand. All right, the rest of you, your education failed you. (laughs) He is the great, Alexander the Great, and he was great for many reasons. One of those reasons was he conquered massive amounts of the world, But he is also mentioned in Scripture. He's prophesied about in two separate places at least. And what's really interesting was when he was conquering the known world, he was very good at it. But as he was coming through, he had just, he was coming down from Greece, was coming into the land of Israel, and he laid siege to Tyre. Nobody had conquered Tyre. The Babylonians hadn't done it. The Persians hadn't done it. And along come the Greeks, and they do it. But while they were laying siege to Tyre, he sends out a requisition to all the surrounding nations, and he says, hey, why don't you send some supplies our way, because we're laying siege to Tyre. Jerusalem and Judea refused. They said no. And so the Greeks... And Alexander specifically said, when I am done with Tyre, I am going to destroy Jerusalem. So he finishes up, he conquers Tyre, the only one to do it, and he heads off from Tyre and heads towards Jerusalem. When he gets to Jerusalem, apparently, we don't know fully, so some of this is legend, we don't know for sure, because this happened in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, but in between, during that time, the priests 
had had some sort of vision or something, and they felt like they needed to receive him like a king. So they put banners on the walls of Jerusalem, and they came out in a procession as he was approaching Jerusalem. And he had said, I'm going to destroy Jerusalem. When they approached um, Alexander, the legend says, and we don't know if it's true or not, but not just legend, this is a historian said this happened as well, um, that when he was approaching, Alexander saw the high priest and had had a dream wherein he had seen this guy before. And so he went, whoa. And he decided not to destroy Jerusalem. The priest then read to him the prophecies in the Bible that were about him. And he's like, I like Jerusalem. <laughs> you know, because like, this is good stuff. Like, I conquer everything, it sounds like. Um, it does say he dies young, but maybe they didn't read him that part. We don't. So anyways, so he, he says, you know what? I'm going to leave Jerusalem to their own devices. And he does. He treated Jerusalem and Judea well, headed off east, continued to conquer all the way down into what they called India, but really was Pakistan. Okay, so he conquered all the way east. And when he gets there, I mean, so things are going well for him. And then he gets sick and he dies, dies young, right? On his deathbed, they ask him, who should take over the kingdom when you die? And he says, the strongest which is not the thing you say if you want there to be peace in your kingdom after you die. And nobody knew what that meant. So am I the strongest? Are you the strongest? Like, so what they decided to do was divide the kingdom up before or in front of or be, uh, to four of his generals, Antigonus, Cassander, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. They divide these, four, these up into four kingdoms, and, and, and he says it goes to the strongest. Well, what's going to happen? Well, Seleucus was the first one to kind of break the peace, and he started trying to do, uh, build up his kingdom. He was in Syria area, and Ptolemy was down in Egypt. Those two really grow in power as the others begin to wane, and they end up attacking each other, okay? Well, Seleucus and Ptolemy and their two kingdoms, the Seleucid and Ptolemaic kingdoms are fighting. Who's right in the middle? Israel. And so these guys are going back and forth for generations Conquering Israel, conquering one, attacking one another, right? Going through the, the, the land of promise over and over and over again. And this goes on for generations until Seleucus's great, great, great grandson, whose name was Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV was a bad dude. He hated the Jewish people, which is surprising, right? Nobody hates the Jewish people. There's someone specifically who hates the Jewish people. And because he hates the Jewish people, many people hate the Jewish people. I'm just saying. And I, Antiochus was one of them. He hated the Jewish people, and the reason why he hated the Jewish people was because Alexander had told them they could live in peace. And so they were like the ones who would not become Greek. So as everybody else became Greek, spoke Greek, um, worshipped the Greek gods, the people of Israel did not, specifically Judea. They refused, and they worshipped God in Jerusalem. And so he decided he was going to put an end to that. First thing he did was outlaw Sabbath. No more Sabbath. You can't have Sabbath. And then he outlawed circumcising your children, which were the signs of the covenant, Right? These are core things for the Jewish people. And then he outlawed the worship of God in Jerusalem specifically. He took the temple and he brought in a, a statue of Zeus. He says, you're going to worship Zeus now. And then he, on the altar, sacrificed a pig. Yeah, the blood of the pig went down around the altar, which of course is incredibly offensive for the Jewish people. That was the breaking point. This guy was a bad dude, though, just in general. He caught, or he didn't, they caught two mothers. I mean, people were doing this stuff in secret. They were still observing the Sabbath. They were still circumcising their children. They were not going to give those things up in spite of the oppression. But they caught two women whose children had been circumcised. Their sons had been circumcised. So they had them killed, hung around their necks, um, around the mother's neck, and then those women were marched up to the temple mount and thrown off. This guy was a bad, 
bad dude. But when he sacrificed a pig on the altar, that was the breaking point. There was a priest named Matthias. He had some sons. And they started a rebellion, a guerrilla rebellion against Antiochus IV. Antiochus, by the way, decided to start referring to himself as Antiochus Epiphanes. Which means, Antiochus, God made manifest. And as happens when somebody decides to name themselves Epiphanes, um, someone decided to do a play on words. And they changed Epiphanes to Epimenes, which means the madman. Antiochus the madman. And that's what he became known as, Antiochus the madman. But once he sacrificed that pig on the altar, he, by the way, became, he is the image of the Antichrist in Scripture um, that he was referred to, or that moment was referred to as the abomination which called, caused des- desolation. He is a picture of the Antichrist in Scripture. He was a bad, bad guy. So this guerrilla rebellion, though, against him grabbed steam. The day on which the sacrifice had happened, according to, again, um, historian, was the historian who wrote this down, was on the 25th of Kislev, 167 BC. And this guerrilla rebellion takes off. Matthias dies, his son Judas Maccabeus takes over. You've probably heard that name before, because if you're having background in Catholicism or know anybody who's Catholic, they have a portion of the scripture, which we do not have. And they believe it is scripture. We believe that it is not, at least on the level of scripture. But it records all of this, um, these things happening. But Judas Maccabeus leads this guerrilla rebellion, which is incredibly successful, ends up kicking the Greeks out of Jerusalem. And that happens in 187 BC. Antiochus dies. And when they do, he or they rededicate the temple because it was profaned, right, by this pig and the statue of Zeus. They remove the statue of Zeus, say, no, this is going to be for worship of God. And as they were rededicating the temple, one of the ways that they did that was with this holy oil and they lit a lamp, right? And that lamp, they knew it was, they only had enough for one day. This is how the legend goes. They had enough for one day. And when they lit the lamp, They knew it was going to take them seven days to refine enough oil to the point of making it holy enough to be used in the temple. So they lit the lamp on the first day, and supposedly, miraculously, it remained lit all the way until the oil was refined. And so this miracle, then for them, became Hanukkah. And when Jesus is celebrating this, this is... A celebration by Jesus himself, it says, right on during that time of Hanukkah. Well, the Kislev 25th was the day when the rededication happened, exactly three years to the day after the pig had been sacrificed on the altar. Kislev 25, the 25th of Kislev, which even sounds like Christmas, doesn't it? The 25th of December, 25th of Kislev, they're not the same day. But... Kislev 25th this year was Friday, December 8th. On the day that when Jesus was doing it, it was probably somewhere around December 18th. But, so this is during winter, specifically during Hanukkah, during a time of tremendous pride for the Jewish people when they had kicked the Greeks out. And along comes the Romans and they take back over. So you can imagine that this would have been a time of tremendous expectation for the Messiah because this was the day when they were celebrating or the week when they were celebrating that very thing. So Hanukkah had begun on this day. So let's go back to it. Verse 22, it was now winter and Jesus was in Jerusalem at the time of Hanukkah, the festival of dedication. Now, exactly the day, we don't know, but it was probably somewhere between December 18th and December 26th. This is, by the way, right after this, Jesus heads off to the other side of the Jordan, comes back in time for Passover. So this is Jesus's last Christmas. And he's in Jerusalem for the festival of the dedication, sometimes called the festival of the lights. Okay, verse 23. He was in the temple 
walking through the section known as Solomon's Colonnade. So at the feast of the dedication of the temple, Jesus is walking through the temple. I do not think this is a coincidence. I think Jesus was doing something very specific. John records five times that Jesus shows up in Jerusalem during his life. All of those others were during major uh, 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 festivals, Passover twice probably, Feast of Tabernacles, and here in this Feast of uh, the Dedication of the Temple. And he is specifically walking through the temple on a day that the law did not require that he be there. He is in the temple celebrating something which was not required by the law. This was him observing a Jewish tradition. In fact, the very first sermon I preached was on that very idea. That was what I was pulling from this, how tradition can be good, that tradition can be a good thing if it has meaning and purpose behind it. Here is Jesus celebrating a tradition in spite of the fact that it had no biblical basis. So on this day when he's there at the feast of the dedication of the temple, verse 24, the people surrounded him and asked, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. So you can pick up on the expectation here on this day in particular. This is, and and even for the feast of the dedication of the temple, they lit a lamp in Jerusalem, which points back to, by the way, the promise to David that there would always be a lamp in Jerusalem lit, which meant the line of David would continue. So you can imagine as they're lighting a lamp in Jerusalem on this day that there was a massive expectation for the Messiah, not only because of the initial promise to David, but because 160, 190, 200 years, we'll say, 200 years before, the Jewish people had kicked the Greeks out. Now the Romans are there. And so there's this massive expectation. You pick up on it right here. And they say, tell us plainly, are you the Messiah or not? Jesus replied, I have already told you, and you don't believe me. The proof is the work I do in my Father's name. But you don't believe me because you are not my sheep. So they approach Jesus, and they tell him essentially, hey, by the way, our unbelief is your fault. Right? We don't believe because you haven't been plain about it. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. That's not true at all. I have been very clear. All of the works point to me as being who I am. You don't believe because you are not my sheep. You don't believe because you do not want to. You believe what you want to believe. We don't believe what we don't want to believe. This is humanity. We decide for years and years, for literally centuries during the modern era, just so you know, this is one of the best parts of coming to postmodernism. During the modern era, we pretended we were so objective as humans. Oh, we can be objective about things. We don't have to do or say or think a certain way just based on our experience. And in reality, what we realized at the end of modernity and moving into postmodernity is everybody's subjective. Everybody thinks what they want to think. Everybody believes what they want to believe. Everybody has internally drives that affect and impact every decision that they make. Nobody is objective. Everybody is subjective. There is no way to be objective. We're humans. That's not how we're built. Our desire is our driving motivator. We want, we long, and on top of that is what we believe. We believe what we want to believe. We don't believe what we don't want to believe. Jesus tells them, you do not believe because you don't want to. And then he says, my sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. For my Father has given them to me, and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. This is such a beautiful picture. Last week, I talked about the difference between being held by God and someone who removes God from the situation, and then they are grasping at straws. This is two weeks in a row, I believe, that the Holy Spirit has been speaking to somebody in particular. 
about the fact that God is holding you. And that means something. And I don't know why, twice in a row, he's wanted to get this message through. And I don't know if you didn't hear it last week, whoever you are. But listen to what Jesus says. I hold you. I hold you in my hand. And no one can take you away from that. As if that wasn't enough, the Father holds you too. (laughs) You see that? He is saying to you, what can separate you from the love of God? Nothing. Neither life, nor death, angels, nor demons, fears for today, worries for tomorrow, not even the power of hell, no power in the sky, no power on earth, nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God. Why? Because you are held by him and you are held by the Father. No one can snatch you out of his hand. You are safe. So hear that. Twice in a row he said it. You better hear it this time. All right, next verse, 31. Once again, the people picked up stones to kill him. And Jesus said, at my father's direction, I have done many good works. For which one are you going to stone me? They replied, we're stoning you not for any good work, but for blasphemy. You, a mere man, claim to be God. You, a mere man, claim to be God. The literal of that is, you, a man, Make yourself God, which is right and totally wrong at the exact same time. They've hit the nail on the head. The problem is it's their own head, right? They say, you're a man making yourself God. They've got it. He's both. But they've got it backwards. He is not man making himself God. He is God making himself man. So they get it right and wrong at the exact same time. But the reason why is because they see the truth. It's right in front of them. They cannot deny it. But they do. Because they believe what they want to believe. Pretend to be objective, but they aren't. You're the one who's keeping us in suspense. And he says, no, you have seen everything you need to see. If you wanted to believe, you would, but you don't want to believe, so you don't. The most important thing about us then is what we want. Surrendering to Christ changes what we want, which changes what we believe. This is what it means to put your faith in Christ. And then he says all of this, and you see this beautiful picture here. And, and then as you think through it, you think how close they are and how very far. And all of this I'm trying to tie to Christmas. Two weeks from today is Christmas Eve. If you haven't done your shopping yet, online, starting to get a little sketchy. You probably should buy in person. Because shipping at this point, it gets a little tough. I see my UPS man regularly out there driving at 8 or 9 p.m. The post office, same thing. Like, I was driving home, it was pitch blackout, and I see the post office guy driving by. I'm like, man, bless you. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) because it's probably at least partly my fault. So we're two weeks away. And I'm supposed to be talking about joy today, and I'm reading a story which has no joy in it. Joy is not mentioned one time in the story. And it's mentioned eight times in the birth narrative. And I'm like, why am I reading a story with no joy? Because this week I was talking to Liz, and she told me, when I was growing up, my dad told me something. He said, joy is the best adornment. How many of you have ever heard that phrase before? Joy is the best adornment. Okay, just my wife. It's great, Phil. That's a great line. Apparently nobody else has ever heard it. It's good stuff. Joy is the best adornment, which I believe is true. The definition of an ornament is a thing used to make something else look more attractive. An ornament is 
something used to make something else look more attractive. Joy is the best adornment. I love our tree outside. It's beautiful. I think it's great. I'm so thankful for the people who donated in order to make it happen. It is missing ornaments, though. And so I've already talked to a few people to keep their eyes open after Christmas for ornaments that are good for outside so that next year when the tree goes up, it'll have ornaments on it. So then during the day, you see it in all its beauty and glory because an ornament makes the tree, I mean, even these trees here, they're lit up and I love them. They're beautiful, but they're missing ornaments. An ornament, man, just makes it pop even more. Because an ornament is something that you hang, and it makes it more beautiful. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to... No, I'm just kidding. I'm just joking. I'm just... <laughs> Joy is the best adornment. Joy makes everyone more attractive. Joy makes everyone more attractive. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you look like. Joy will make you more attractive. If you are trying to attract someone, aim for joy. It is the best adornment because joy attracts us. It attracts others. Joy is the most beautiful adornment. And God told us to be joyful. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, well, I'm going to start in verse 15. See that no one pays back evil for evil, but always try to do good to each other and to all people. Always be joyful. Never stop praying. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. I think all of those things are interrelated. I don't think you just choose from the list. I think that as you do one, the others naturally increase as well. If you do good to others, guess what? You get joy as a result. If you continue to pray over and over and over again, it affects your joy. Gratitude does as well. I believe the more grateful you are, if there's a place to start, start with gratitude. The more gratitude you show, the more joy that you will have. All of these things impact one another and, and continue to increase together. And yet joy is the only one that people try to fake because it does make people more attractive. People paste a big smile on their face and they pretend they are full of joy even if they are not. But having fake joy is dangerous. Researchers at Duke and North Carolina and Harvard as well have run studies on this, how faking something affects you as a person. They did a study where they gave a bunch of women Chloe sunglasses. I'd never heard of Chloe sunglasses, but I looked it up, and they're normally somewhere between $500 and $1,000. So they gave all these women, just for the study, I think they took them back at the end, I'm sure they did. They gave them these sunglasses as part of the study. They didn't know this was the study, but this was the study. So they give them all these Chloe sunglasses. But they told half of them that the sunglasses were fake Chloe sunglasses. And then, between the time that they gave them the sunglasses and the time that the study was supposed to start was really the time they were being studied. And they were put in situations where they could see how that affected their ethics. What they found was this, that those, even though it was totally random, those who were in the knockoff group were more than twice as likely to both cheat and steal in a subsequent study than the women who believed that they were wearing the real deal. Just wearing the real deal Chloe sunglasses made them more honest. Because they thought they were fake, they were more likely to cheat and steal. In another study, People who thought they were wearing the fake sunglasses were more cynical in their attitudes towards other people. When you fake it, you put it on, the result is you feel like a phony 
and you become more deceptive and cynical with others as well. In other words, fake sunglasses can damage your soul. And fake joy does too. When you fake it, you feel more cynical towards others because you think they're faking too. And when you fake it and you know it's not real, then it's not something that you are pouring out. It's just a put-on thing. And as a result, you're less likely to do the right thing at the right time. What we need is the real thing. We need real joy. The reason this story is not a story that we normally read at Christmas is because there is no joy in it. And why is there no joy? Because joy has two necessary elements. Joy has two elements that make for real joy. One, desire. You must desire. You must want something in order to have joy. Two, you must realize that desire. If you want something and you get it, the result is joy. That's as simple as it gets. You want something and you get it, there's joy. For these people, they desire. They desire the Messiah. And it seems like they have a realization of that desire. On the day when they should be very aware of the Messiah, walking through the temple is the Messiah. And yet there is no joy. Why? Because they don't want Jesus to be the Messiah. If they wanted Jesus to be the Messiah, the response would be joy. This should have been Christmas morning for them. Right? This is the thing they have longed for forever, and he's walking through the temple on the day when they're lighting the, the, the light and celebrating the Messiah delivering them. And here's the Messiah, and they don't even see it. Why? Or respond in joy. Because they don't want him to be the Messiah. Joy is the product of our desire, our wanting, our longing, and the realization of that wanting, longing, and desiring. When you get what you want, there is joy. And they try to blame Jesus for their unbelief. And he says, no, you don't believe because you don't want to believe, which is the same for us. If we want to believe, we will believe. If we don't want to believe, we won't believe. And so real joy some of you, in fact, I would say many of you, have experienced the type of joy that it talks about in Nehemiah, chapter 8, verse 10. The verse where it says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. How many of you have experienced that type of joy in the Lord? What I mean by that is, not based on other circumstances, not based on what you see around you. You have experienced maybe in the darkest of times. In fact, that's when it's most visible that it's the joy of the Lord. Because we find joy in lots of places all the time. But when it is most obvious that it is in joy of the Lord is when the circumstances around us don't point to joy. But somehow, through it, through our faith, through what we believe, through what we want and what he has promised us, there is joy as a result. The joy of the Lord, which is our strength, when we have no other reason to have joy. How many of you have experienced that? Before I have you raise your hand, let me, let me give you a little bit more. Normally, it's in hard times. Normally, it's in loss. Normally it's in difficulty. Normally it's in the darkness. And you should have no reason to be filled with joy. And yet, in that moment, that joy provides strength for you. And you draw on it. 
If you know exactly what I'm talking about and that has happened for you, would you just raise your hand? That's the real deal, Joy. You can put them down. And if you were in here and you didn't raise your hand, I want you to know that for those who did, that's real. That is not put on. That's not faked. I know because I've walked through some of the situation that those hands represented with them. I've walked through loss with them. I've walked through difficulty with them. And I know when it's real. I've seen it in the midst of the darkest of moments that joy from the Lord becomes their strength. That is the real deal. And that joy only makes sense if you want something and you get it. So what is it that they want? They want the promises of God, that there is something beyond this world, that there is salvation for our souls, that there is a hope for a future, and they want that. And then by faith, they believe that they have received it in Jesus Christ. That's how you get the joy of the Lord, is first, by wanting what he wants you to want, And second, by faith, believing that he has given it to you. It's very simple, but also incredibly difficult. Because the most important question that Jesus ever asked anybody was, what do you want? And most people don't even know what they actually want. They say they want the one thing, but in reality, they want something else. And you could tell it, see it played out in their lives. They say one thing, but in reality, they don't want that. These people wanted the Messiah, but when the Messiah was right in front of them, they didn't want actually him to be the Messiah. So the most important question you can ask yourself is the same question that Jesus asked some of his first disciples. What do you want? What is it you're after? What are you longing for? Because that serves as the bedrock of every belief and every emotion and every thought that you have is what you want. And so think, what is it you want? And think, what is it you believe you have in Christ Jesus? And when those things get aligned, there is joy.